Okay, comfort and joy. So this is the only Justice League Christmas episode, as well as uh, the only Season 2 episode to be written by Paul Dini, a writer, of course, who uh, came on board the DCAU early on in Batman the Animated Series and wrote many of the most acclaimed episodes and went on to become a producer on the shows through uh, the new Batman Adventures and Superman and Batman Beyond. But uh, by the time Justice League rolled around, he moved on to other things. Around uh, this time period, he's, I'm not sure exactly what he was working on, but uh, slightly later than this, he started working on Lost. But uh, they got him back for this episode, because according to Bruce Tim, uh, Paul Dini is like Mr. Christmas, apparently. He's really a really festive guy, really gung-ho for Christmas, so... Basically, Superman in this episode is is acting just like Paul Dini does. So... They got him back for this one, and then he, he would go on to script uh, This Little Piggy and Far From Home in JLU. So this episode, uh, that if, if people have a problem with this episode, it's usually because it's kind of schmaltzy and uh, perhaps overly sentimental, according to some. But uh, Bruce Tim says that he doesn't have a problem with an episode being sort of set sentimental and uh, and touchy feely, so long as it's actually affecting. If it, if it if it's you know sort of fake sentimental and and doesn't really work, then that's a problem. But so long as it's genuinely touching, then uh, he doesn't have a problem with uh, with sentiment. And I think this episode does succeed on uh, on every level. Others might disagree, but. Uh, I remember the first time I saw it. I'm trying to remember exactly what day Cartoon Network aired it. I know they aired it as a special one-hour event with uh, with the Batman Christmas episode from the new Batman Adventures. And uh, But I, I think it was only about a week before Christmas, and it really did put me in a Christmas kind of mood. There's Hawkgirl with her, uh, her coat, which you only see her wearing in this one... Uh, this one instance until uh, Shadow of the Hawk when they're reviewing the tapes of past battles and you see her in some sort of arctic gear, but this is the uh, pretty much the only time. So this episode is notable uh, in a few ways, and I'll, I'll mention them as they, uh, as they come around. But it uh, gives us a bit more insight into Jon Stewart. It uh, gives us a bit more insight into The Flash provides a nice return appearance for the ultra-humanite, and uh, works in a couple of little comic book-related cameos in that we see the first appearance of Jean's uh, human identity, as well as a little cameo from out of his past that, uh, that probably went over most people's heads, and I'll point out when it comes up early on. And uh, also introduces his comic-based obsession with a particular snack food. So we're going to open here in a second with uh, with GL and Hawk Girl frolicking in the snow, and uh, this really served as sort of a first date for for these characters. In the air date order, Wild Cards had aired before this, so they were together as a couple. But in the actual production order, this comes before Wild Cards. So the idea is that uh, 
they get together on wild cards and then the very next episode it all falls, falls apart and uh which would be disrupted by having this come after but uh, the idea is that this is sort of them getting that last little bit closer together before they actually get together on wild cards now here is uh, what I was referring to as far as the further insight into John Stewart's background he mentions here his grandmother who he shared some good times with uh frolicking in the snow and so on when he was a child and uh, back in uh, Legends, he mentions an uncle who used to go over to his house every day after school and read old comics. So you kind of get the impression that family was very uh, was very important to John Stewart growing up, but there's never any mention of his parents. And uh, and Phil Lamar, uh, in an interview about the character, talked a bit about his views into that aspect and talked about how, uh, in his experience, a lot of black men who went into the military uh, at a relatively young age, like John Stewart apparently did, did so to, in his words, escape from bad environments, which is to say, you know, bad neighborhoods or bad family environments or, or things of that nature. So I kind of get the impression that perhaps John wasn't really close to his parents. Um, maybe they weren't around a lot or... Uh, or maybe they were just neglectful or something. He seems to have a really strong uh, bond to the rest of his family, but doesn't really sh seem to share too many fond memories of his parents. So uh, that's an interesting take on the on the character, that if that's indeed what they were going for, it's more likely that they just only had a couple of places to mention his family and just never got around to mentioning his parents. But certainly feeds into, at the very least, what Phil Lamar uh, viewed as the character's background. Here we get more of the Flash as a hero to kids, which was hinted at in Only a Dream, where he had the dream where uh, where he was hanging out with the kids watching his own cartoon. And here's DJ Rubaducky, and this is George Newbern, Superman's voice actor, doing doing the the, the duck. I like how uh, it goes on for like three times as long as it should by all rights with the farting noises, but uh, that's George Newbern as as DJ Rubaducky. A star-making turn uh, in in many ways. I'm surprised this didn't uh, this didn't propel him to stardom. And here we are at the Kent Farm. I loved seeing uh, the Kent Farm again. I love the relationship Superman has with his parents. It's uh, it's really heartwarming. And here, Spit Curl shouldn't have a Spit Curl. The spit curl appears on and off throughout the episode. It should not be there when he's in his Clark Kent identity, but it crops up every now and then. And Mike Farrell, of course, from MASH. And I love that the Kents are so, uh, so accepting of Jean as well. This was really an important step in John's uh, development as far as becoming closer to humanity as well. There's Kara in the background in that photo, family photo, and it mentions here that she's off skiing with Barbara because, of course, uh, Kara became good friends with Barbara, a.k.a. Batgirl, back in the uh, the Batman episode Girls' Night Out. And here's Kara's room that we'll see again later in Fearful Symmetry. And George Newbern does a does a very good job in this episode as well. He uh, He lightens his voice up probably uh, slightly closer to his, his actual speaking voice. Come back to that. Right? Yeah, there he is. There's Zook, the uh, the little orange guy with the antenna. Zook was Jean's 
little funny animal sidekick from 1963 through 1968. The story went that he was a little creature from another dimension that Jean found on an island. Why he was from another dimension and happened to be on an island in this dimension, I don't know. Maybe that's, I don't know, I haven't read the stories. Uh, apparently he could change his, uh, change his temperature and change his shape, but not his color. And uh, early on, he could not speak, and so he was kind of like a pet. But then when he did gain the ability to talk, he became more of a partner to Jean and helped him solve several cases and so on. Uh, and then he uh, sort of disappeared as I tried to bring the comic back towards uh, a more serious level. But yeah, as I was saying, George Newbern uh, does an excellent job in this episode. It's uh, it's still undeniably the same voice, but uh, it's and it's not as as in your face as what Kevin Conroy used to do, but uh, with the difference between Batman and Bruce Wayne. But it's not so much even a lighter tone of voice. It's just like a weight is lifted off his shoulders, and uh, he just feels much more comfortable in his own skin, which is a take on the character that I that I have a lot of fondness for. That. Uh, the Smallville Clark identity, if you will, as opposed to the Metropolis Clark identity, where he can really be, be himself and be comfortable. He doesn't have to be nebbish Clark at the Daily Planet, nor does he have to be hands on his hips, halt, go no further, you know, superhero, Superman. And they really uh, play up Flash having a good relationship with the people of his city as well, which of course pays off in, uh, in Flash and Substance. There's Mike Farrell as the store owner there. I like here in a second where they sort of fake you out about where Flash is going to go, because he says, I'll go straight to the source, and then it cuts to this snow-capped peak, and he's looking at the to the Santa toy, and you think for a second, like, wait a minute, is he actually going to go to the North Pole, and they're going to have him get a toy from Santa? But then it pans back to reveal... Uh, presumably Tokyo. Robert Ito. So some people had a bit of a problem with uh, with the implication that Spit Girl, a bit of a problem with the implication in this episode that uh, that Clark still believes in Santa. It's kind of a thing that I mean, if you think about it, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense, and and realistically, it it probably doesn't ring true. But it seems to fit in the the mood of this episode, and whether he actually means it or not, or whether he's just sort of uh, playing that side of himself to. Uh, to have some fun with his parents, I don't know, but and I like that look there, where uh, where Jean's completely taken aback by Martha's kindness, and Clark sort of uh, smiles and raises his, uh, raises his cup to him as if to say, you know, now you understand. This is where I came from. You know, it's it's sort of a nice uh, thing where he's he's sort of letting Jean see why he is who he is, you know, and he's he's proud of where he's come from and the people that have shaped him. It's a really good episode for Superman. Now, this is kind of risky because there's Swamp Thing in the background. This is kind of risky for Hawkgirl to do, and there's a person who looks like uh, he's Stan and Gary, and, and that just sort of 
goes into what I'm about to say, which is Hawkgirl's cover story here is that she's trapped on Earth and she can't get back to Thanagar. Well, okay, but if that's the case, how is she able to come out to this bar every now and then and hang out and have drinks? Because she doesn't have a ship. She doesn't have, you know, a Zeta Beam or, or anything like that, and the League doesn't have a fleet of javelins that they can just she can take for sure leave whenever she wants yet. So, uh, so how does she get out here? A. And B, since this is way out in the middle of the other side of the galaxy, presumably, you think someone here might accidentally let slip that she's a Thanagarian soldier, if indeed they do know that, and as evidenced by the fact that that seemed to be another Thanagarian walking by, this planet does seem to have relationships with Thanagar, and so you think someone might point that out, or, or someone might let something slip, so it's kind of surprising that she... Uh, she brings John here because you think it'd be kind of risky. This is a good bit. Bruce Tim said in the uh, the Modern Masters book that's just basically a book long interview with him, and I, I recommend picking up. That uh, a lot of people were kind of turned off by Hawk Girl in this episode, but Bruce Tim thinks it was great. He says, you know, I, I like a woman who can belch. That's a good bit. Animation's a little stiff, but you get the idea. See, there's the Thanagarian again in the background. So here in a second we're going to get uh, the Ultra-Humanite. And uh, since this is the first commentary I'm doing on an episode in which he appears, I'll give you a bit of background on him. The Ultra-Humanite actually, uh, despite the fact that he's not really played up as being a terribly uh, important villain in this series and uh, and hasn't really appeared in popular culture outside of this series, is actually in a lot of ways the uh, the very first supervillain. The Ultra-Humanite was the first Superman villain, aside from, you know, nameless thugs and uh, fifth columnists and, and spies and saboteurs. Uh, the Ultra-Humanite was originally a, a bald human mad scientist much like Lex Luthor end up became uh, end up becoming and there's a reason for that which I'll get to um and he uh he faced off against Superman several times and in one appearance he had a red-headed flunky named Luthor but then in the next appearance Luthor was the main villain and he was drawn as being a bald mad scientist and so the legend goes that the artist on the second story got confused between the ultra-humanite and Luther, and put Lex Luthor's name, although it wasn't Lex Luthor back then, it was just Luther, put Luther's name to the ultra-humanite's look. And so the Lex Luthor that we know and love today was born, and the ultra-humanite sort of fell into obscurity as a result. Um, he was brought back a little bit later, only a few years later, back in the Golden Age, uh, he had had his brain transferred into the body of a female actress. I believe her name was Dolores Winters, but don't quote me on that. Um, and that sort of became his shtick, that he would fake his own death or, you know, would actually die or do irreparable harm to body A and then have his brain transferred into body B. And uh, as time went on, uh, the body he adopted and, and became his most recognizable look was that of a superintelligent albino gorilla. And so the reason why his brain is, is really, or his cranium is really huge and mutated like that is probably because once he inserted his brain into the gorilla, he had to, you know, mutate it or something to, to maintain his, uh, his intelligence while in this new body. 
the episode doesn't really deal with that, and you kind of get the feeling that, uh, you know, if you were to watch this, you, you couldn't really be blamed for thinking that he was just a super intelligent gorilla. But the fact that he's his modus operandi, according to Flash in this episode, is that he personifies human advancement. And given that at the end of the episode, it's implied that he used to have, you know, a Christmas tree and a family and so on when he was little, uh, obviously that wouldn't be the case if he was just a gorilla. So that origin is implied in his animated version, but not discussed outright. It's a great little bit, too. If Frasier were a supervillain, that's what he would be like. And this is a, a nice little uh, montage here. I love that. Uh, I love the little kiss between the Kents there. <laughs> they wrap Clark's presence in uh, in lead. If I if I were to have any complaint with this episode, it's that Jean kind of comes around to the spirit of Christmas a little too easily. He sees people being happy and kind, and he hears the uh, the choir, the Christmas carols coming from the church, and so on, and. And bam, he's there. But I guess in a 22-minute episode, you kind of have to buy that. So there's John Jones, as opposed to Jean Jones, his human identity. And I love how sort of lanky and gaunt he is, kind of like, uh, you know, what he would look like as a human if you took away a lot of his muscle masses. He would kind of have that sort of gaunt look to him. So John Jones, although he's not explicitly... Uh, called such here, was his human identity from the very beginning in the comics. When John came to Earth in the 50s, he uh, he took on the identity of a police detective, John Jones, for the, uh, for the police department, and would solve crimes predominantly in that identity, only switching into his Martian identity when he needed to defeat particularly tough criminals or, or whatever. Kind of like how in the old George Reeves TV series, it would be mainly about Clark Kent, with Superman maybe putting in an appearance toward the end. Um, and then later on it became more of an out-and-out superhero series as the Silver Age of Comics began, but it's the first appearance of John Jones there, and then he later on takes that identity again to, uh, to hide from the Thanagarians and Starcrossed, and then presumably tries out several identities while he's away from the League, finally setting on, settling on that of a middle-aged, uh, Chinese man in Destroyer. So there, it's kind of sudden. He kind of suddenly gets it. Oh, well. So, um, what I just talked over there was, uh, was Jean tasting the Oreo, or as they're referred to in the comics to avoid copyright infringement, uh, Chacos. In the comics during the, uh, the Giffen de Mateus Maguire, uh, Justice League International era in the, uh, the late 80s, which was sort of based more on humor and, and almost like what Justice League would be like if it were a sitcom, although it did have its serious moments and, and kind of gets a bad rap for being too comedic, but anyway... Uh, during that era, Jean developed a, a real strong taste for, and in fact, almost an addiction to Chacos, and he would keep a stack of them. And, and a lot of art from that, whenever an art, whenever a piece of art is done in that style or harkens back to that era, it's usually with Jean uh, with a, a package of Chacos in his hand or sitting on a throne made out of Chacos or whatever. And in fact, in, uh, in Jean's recent cameo in the Smallville TV series, uh, the way they sort of hinted to the audience that it was Jean because they didn't show him out and out was uh, to have him leave the Loreos behind. Freaky the snowman. That's great. <laughs> I love how indignant he is. 
And it's, I, I, it's kind of weird that the children still like the toy because I, I, I wouldn't think a bunch of inner city kids would, uh, would go in for uh, the Nutcracker and, and be really taken in by it, but whatever. And why it's glowing, I'm not too sure. And there's a great little bit here coming up uh, when Flash takes him back to jail, and that he's uh, he's prepared a little surprise for him, and and uh, I love the smile he gives as he's just as he's leaving. But it's uh, it's great. They really do a lot to humanize Flash in this episode. And in fact, even though a lot of the uh, characterization that's explicit in this episode was implicit in others, like. Uh, GL having you know strong family relationship and Flash having a, a good relationship with the people of the city and with kids in particular, and uh, and John feeling distant from humanity and Superman you know enjoying going back to the farm and little bits like that. This episode really brings them to the fore, and I think if it weren't for um, the things that this episode makes explicit about the characters, you couldn't have done a lot of the things they did in JLU with the characters. Uh, you wouldn't have felt as close to John Stewart uh, throughout Unlimited, and you wouldn't, you, you might not have been able to do uh, Flash and Substance or, or certain things like that with with the Flash, and you might not have been able to do To Another Shore and Destroy Her with Sean if this episode hadn't uh, really played up those aspects. And here's the GL Hawk Girl love theme, and John looks a little weird there. His lips are massive. Look at that. His lips are the size of her entire face. But whatever. And this here, uh, the Martian lullaby that Jean is singing to Streaky the cat, um, apparently Bruce, Tim, and the others were, they wanted to have a little bit of music at the end of the episode here. They wanted Jean to sing, but they didn't want it to be like the Star Wars Christmas special uh, to, and can be completely campy and take you out of the episode. So they put it to Carl Lumbly, the actor, and said, you know, Carl, try to come up with something sweet and sort of... Uh, melodic and, and Martian sounding and, and Lumbly went away and came back a couple weeks later with what he figured a, a Martian lullaby would sound like and it's really really beautiful he's got a terrific voice and it kind of sounds I don't know it, it sounds like it's got a little bit of sort of a, a Caribbean sound or, or sort of a you know like almost like an African like a, a tribal thing I'm not sure but Given that uh, Carl Lumbly is is from the Caribbean, it's it's not surprising, but it's sort of got that sort of uh, that sort of quality to it, and it's really it's a really pretty piece of music. Okay, so there we go. Comfort and joy. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening.